0: Hello, this is the AMA Update video and podcast. Today's topic is what physicians need to know about the No Surprises Act. We're joined today by Emily Carroll, a senior attorney for the AMA's Advocacy Resource Center in Chicago, and George Cox, the AMA's Director of Legislative Council in Washington, D.C. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Emily, George, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Glad to be here. Thank you. Emily, you joined us in December to talk about the No Surprises Act, and I know a lot's happened since then, but let's just kind of start with a baseline, uh, very quick, high-level overview of the act and what it's supposed to accomplish.
1: Great, thanks, Todd. So the No Surprises Act was um, signed into law back in December of 2020, um, and it took effect January 1st of this year. It was intended to address Unexpected gaps in insurance coverage that result in in surprise medical bills when patients unknowingly, unknowingly obtain medical services from physicians and other providers outside of their healthcare network. Uh, the bill the bill prohibits out network billing by physicians, hospitals, and other providers in uh, in emergency situations, and then also in certain non-emergency situations at in-network hospitals when a patient might have not um, typically been able to pick their provider. Uh, the law also sets up a payment process for physicians and the plan potentially ending with arbitration. So it's it's really important for physicians to be aware of these changes and the new prohibitions and requirements in their out-of-network billing.
0: Well, I know the AMA supports the goal of the act to protect patients uh, from surprise bills, but there have been some concern about the independent dispute resolution uh, resolution process that's outlined within the act. Can you remind us of how that resolution process is supposed to work and what the concerns are, Emily?
1: Great, yeah, thanks, Todd, you're right. The AMA has long supported protections for patients against surprise medical billing. Um, and we have always always thought they should be kept out of the middle uh, of those disputes between um, physicians or another healthcare providers and plans. Uh, so. When the when the law was being debated, we did um, support those protections mm-hmm. and work to help set up a independent dispute resolution process uh, between the plans and the providers. Uh, the idea was that uh, this sort of arbitration process would be uh, structured mm-hmm. in a baseball style arbitration way where each provider, um, each physician or provider would submit their own offer with supporting information and the plan would do the same and the arbiter would essentially pick one of the offers. Uh, as the implementing rules have, have been released, um, there has been a, a emphasis um, by the administration to really focus on what we, is called the qualifying payment amount, um, which is supposed to be the in, uh, in-network median rate for, for physicians or other providers for that service in that area. And there's been less of an emphasis um, on these other sort of supporting factors like uh, the, the complexity of care or the, um, the education and experience of the physician. Um, when the first set of rules was released, um, there was generally no way uh, or very little way that some of that supporting information could be used in the decisions by the arbiter and the qualifying payment amount sort of became the de facto uh, payment rate for physicians, um, and as the additional rules have rolled out over the last couple of years, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, um, uh, unfortunately, that the emphasis has continued on that qualifying a payment amount, which leads the, um, which which essentially creates a a de facto payment rate not only in arbitration but in the market in general for physician services. So we're very concerned about the way uh, this arbitration process has been, has been established.
0: And we'll return to talk more about how then the AMA has been advocating for uh, kind of a resolution around that process. Um, um, George, let's uh, ask you a question here. Um, back in August of this year, the uh, HHS at Labor and Treasury Departments issued final rules addressing some of these issues. Um, What were the highlights of uh, those decisions?
2: Uh, Yeah, so on uh, August 19th, uh, the departments issued final rules addressing the provisions um, of the independent dispute resolution payment process. These rules uh, and the supporting uh, FAQs responded to several concerns directly raised by the AMA and other state and specialty federation members. Uh, First, they clarified that the parties initiating open negotiations are always permitted to use the standard federal initiation notice. That is, a plan cannot require a physician to use the plan's proprietary portals to initiate open negotiations. The rules also reflect the language that the AMA and other physician associations advocated for to address the lack of transparency when a plan downcodes a service and calculates a QPA based on the downcoded service code. Now, if a plan downcodes a claim, it must provide additional information on why the claim was uh, downcoded, including an explanation of why uh, why it was downcoded and which service codes were uh, adjusted. This will help physicians in the open negotiation and the IDR process uh, primarily because without this information, physicians are disadvantaged uh, in dispute payment uh, uh, processes uh, since the QPA doesn't reflect the original claim. Uh, the rules also address our concerns that non-negotiated contracted rates, also known as ghost rates, uh, were um, uh, being calculated in, uh, or included in the, in the QPA calculation and uh, contributing to the artificially low QPAs. Plans must now calculate a median contracted rate separately for each specialty when the plan's contracted rates for service codes vary based on physician specialty. Uh, One other important change I'll highlight is a direct result uh, also uh, of the successful Texas uh, Medical Association's lawsuit. Uh, on the interim final rule. Uh, As a result of the court decision in that lawsuit, the final rules removed the rebuttable presumption requirement, uh, whereby an arbiter presumed that the qualifying payment amount is the appropriate out-of-network rate. This, um, the arbiter uh, now must select the party's offer that best represents the value of the service after considering the QPA and information submitted by the parties. Um, As we've considered this new language, uh, however, uh, we're very um, concerned that it falls far short of what Congress intended and still weighs the QPA to the advantage of health plans.
0: Well, uh, these are all positive steps that you've talked about, but obviously, as you said, still some concerns. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the remaining challenges. Uh, I know that the AMA has taken uh, legal action in response. George, how are we approaching this from a legal perspective?
2: Sure. So, I mean, just to take a quick step back, when the interim final rule was released last fall, it included a provision that the uh, IDR entity or the arbiter uh, presume that the QPA is the correct out-of-network payment rate and required it to select the offer that uh, uh, was closest to the QPA unless there was credible information that the QPA was materially different than what was otherwise an appropriate rate. Uh, The AMA expressed significant concern with this rebuttable presumption uh, that was in favor of the QPA uh, and the impact that it would have on physicians' ability to negotiate fair contracts with health plans. Uh, So the AMA joined with the American Hospital Association in a lawsuit uh, that we filed in the federal district court in the District of Columbia here in D.C., asking the court to vacate this rebuttable presumption that weighed in favor of health plans as contrary to the clear intent of Congress. Around the same time, uh, the Texas Medical Association filed a similar lawsuit in the US District Court for the Eastern District of Texas. Uh, In February of this year, the Texas court found in favor of the TMA case and vacated the provision in the IFR, or the interim final rule, that created the rebuttable presumption in favor of the QPA in the IDR process. Uh, As a result, the departments had to go back and rewrite the IDR regulations, which are reflected now in the final rules. Uh, thus, um, since the final rules vacate the provisions in the interim final rule uh, that were the basis of uh, the AMA and the AHA's lawsuit, our lawsuit became moot. Um, however, as I mentioned a moment ago, the final rules still, in our opinion, depart from the intent of Congress and still place a thumb on the scale in favor of, the, of uh, health plans. Uh, so on uh, September um, Uh, 22nd, the Texas Medical Association filed a new lawsuit in the same federal court in Texas, arguing that the final rules still suffer from the same problems as the interim final rules, and we wholeheartedly agree, and rather than uh, file a new lawsuit uh, of our own in the D.C. federal court, uh, we decided, along with the American Hospital Association, that we would be a force multiplier in the Texas case and make our voice heard by filing an amicus brief. Um, In the latest final rule, um, CMS explains that the QPA uh, presumably already factors in most other data and that therefore the IDR entity or the arbiter is directed not to, quote, double count or consider all other data that were required to be considered by Congress unless they find that a a physician demonstrates that their data was so exceptional and unusual uh, that it wasn't already included in the QPA calculation. The final rule also requires arbiters to provide written decisions to the the, uh, departments at the end of the IDR process. And if the IDRE or the arbiter uh, does not choose the offer that's closest to the QPA, it must include a detailed explanation of additional considerations relied upon, whether the information submitted by the parties was credible, and the basis upon which the IDRE determined that the credible information demonstrated that the QPA is materially different from the appropriate out-of-network rate. We emphasize in our amicus brief that these requirements viewed in whole looks more like a fist rather than a thumb on the scale in favor of uh, the health plans. So in other words, when all of the extra statutory requirements are viewed as a whole, we argue that the final rules elevate the QPA above the other factors that uh, Congress uh, uh, requires the uh, arbiter to consider and that it's in violation of the plain uh, word of uh, of the statute.
0: So, still a lot of work to be done here on that dispute resolution process. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox, Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at AMA-ASSN.org/slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. Uh, Emily, from what uh, we understand, a lot of concern about the final rule in this regard uh, from private practices. Can you give us uh, a little more information about uh, the concern here about how this will impact private practices if things don't change?
1: Absolutely. So um, as we mentioned, the QPA, because of the weight that the rules give this QPA or this median and network rate, um, it becomes the the rate that not only out-of-network physicians are paid um, in the independent dispute resolution process, but it becomes the rate that uh, enters into contract negotiations um, for all physicians when they're having uh, these negotiations with plans to be in network. We've been hearing not only um, that these rates have been uh, contract rates that are offered to physicians are lowering as a result of these final rules and and the interim final rules before that, um, but we're also hearing a lot about physician practices being cut from networks as a result of this. So um, the the plans can can take it or leave it um, in terms of contracts with physicians at this point um, and still have the benefits of um, having patients receive uh, in-network rates for their care. Um, so, without greater protections in place and without a more robust IDR process, we're going to continue to see these contracting issues. Um, and, and particularly for small um, or independent practices, the the results are going to be long-lasting. These are um, often plans that ha- they've had, you know, multi-year, um, decades-long contracts with that they're now seeing. Um, rate cuts or removals from these networks. And the the long-term impact on patients is an access issue. They they will simply, some of these practices will simply not be able to keep their doors open. um, And we're not gonna be seeing um, in-network access for patients um, in the long run.
0: Those are huge concerns and obviously, uh, much more work continuing uh, to, to address these Emily, when you kind of look into the future, uh, do you expect, you know, more provisions as the No Surprises Act uh, evolves?
1: Yeah, the No Surprises Act was not actually just focused on um, surprise billing, although that's, uh, you know, been, been the, the focus for many over the last year. Um, but there were a lot of other provisions in the law that passed that are um, in the process of being implemented now of several of those focus on price transparency requirements. Um, We saw implementation last year of a price transparency requirement, which has been sort of um, dubbed the good faith estimate provisions for um, either self-pay or uninsured patients. And this requires uh, physicians or other healthcare providers who are scheduling care with a patient who um, is self-pay to collect estimates from other providers involved in the care and submit that information um, to the patient prior to um, care being provided. The AMA certainly supports price transparency and providing patients with meaningful price information prior to care so they can make informed cost decisions. But uh, it's really important that as these provisions are implemented, we're not putting unnecessary administrative burdens on already strapped physician practices um, to, do, uh, to do some of these, these price transparency requirements, especially when lots of states um, have price transparency requirements, such as these in place already. So some of these um, rules may be duplicative. And next year we're anticipating um, the implementation of what's um, also what's being called the advanced explanation of benefits provision. So this is the sort of sister provision to that good faith estimate one um, that implements price transparency and a cost information prior to care for insured patients. So um, we're anticipating a lot of comment letters over the next couple months um, on these provisions. And we're also really advocating for for meaningful tr- price transparency that really recognizes that all of this is happening in a much larger ecosystem of um, data exchange and and the workflow of physician practice and, and really urging the administration to keep um, the administrative burden that's being placed on physician practices in mind as they, as they implement these provisions.
0: I think that's just a really important point. I mean, you can really take away uh, a couple of key things here. One is this is very complicated. Uh, and two, just how important uh, the role of organized medicine, AMA, the Federation are, in being able to address uh, some of these things, uh, particularly in the legal front, uh, gotta be very confusing to physicians. Um, George, how how do we help physicians navigate uh, what are these really complicated issues?
2: Well, uh, we've uh, put together a number of uh, documents and guidance uh, materials uh, that uh, help physicians understand uh, the implementation uh, of the No Surprises Act. Uh, this includes a summary of the uh, uh, the August final rule that we've been talking about, as well as a toolkit that walks through the steps that physicians or their practice managers need to take uh, when disputing an out-of-payment, uh, out-of-network payment. And uh, we're currently in the process of updating our toolkit and other resources uh, to reflect the changes that were made in the final rule. Uh, and we're going to be posting these revised resources um, on our website when they're finalized. Um, also, uh, I should point out that the uh, Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services, as well as the, the uh, Department of Labor, uh, also has resources for physicians on their websites. And the link to those resources are in our toolkit. Uh, And um, we've also held two national webinars on the No Surprises Act implementation. Uh, The first is uh, on the implementation itself, and the second one uh, focuses on the out-of-network payment process under the law. Uh, Those are currently on our website. Um, We also continue to revise our resources and create new ones as uh, uh, developments arise. And that will include um, the changes uh, if there are any to the final rule uh, that uh, relate to the uh, independent dispute resolution process as a result of the outcome of the current lawsuit in texas
0: thank you so much george uh all the links uh for the resources that george talked about you can find them in the description of this episode and again uh What a great example of the power of organized medicine and just how important it is uh, to support the AMA and your state societies. Uh, That wraps up today's episode. Again, thank you, Emily, George, for all the work that you and the advocacy team at the AMA are doing on this important concern for physicians and patients. We're back with another AMA video and podcast soon. You can find all our videos and podcasts at ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Please take care.